All right, listeners, uh, we have a very special episode of the Ave Bus podcast. I know we say that all the time, but this one's actually special because we have a very special guest here. Um, <laughs> we mentioned his comics about a year ago when we were doing our breakdown of the best webcomic for 20, so that, 2021. So it would be the Eisenhower for 2020, when comics came out in 2020. And our pick was a digital comic called The Middle Age by Steve Conley. And lo and behold, you know, we said we both love this comic. We both think it does a lot of cool things that, uh, with the medium. Lo and behold, we were both wrong. We were very wrong about, <laughs> about winning. But um, it won in our hearts. That's what, yeah. And that's what matters. Yeah. And funny enough, uh, after the episode went live, the creator, Steve Conley, started following... Uh, us on Twitter. I thought, oh wow, that's cool. Most comic people on Twitter usually call me socialist as an insult and block me. So that's cool. And then I saw that Steve had uh was has streams on Twitch. I was like, oh cool, I'll check it out. I like watching Twitch streams. And then I'm now a regular viewer of Steve Connolly's Twitch stream. And he was so gracious enough to find to agree to my request that if he wanted to come to our podcast and talk about his Story Comics career. Ladies and gentlemen, and gentle thems, Steve Connolly's in the house. This is where the, like, the foghorns and everything will go off, but we ain't got the budget for that. So, hey, how's it going, Steve? Very, very good. <laughs> I, I, I appreciate that introduction. Uh, yeah, it's very <laughs> nice to meet you guys. Well, nice to see you, Eric. Uh, it's it's nice to, for it to be a two-way conversation instead of just uh, me rambling and Twitch. And... Yeah, and just me being the faceless viewer talking jokes in chat so well, you, were, you, were, you were all you were very kind with the review of the middle age i really appreciated it um no we didn't win the eisner uh but uh it's fine <laughs> i guess there's always next time <laughs> well it's such a miracle to get nominated because mm-hmm. there's roughly a billion co- web comics and the juror the judges i forget their exact terminology the judges i think the judges have such a a huge task to sort through all that stuff. The idea that they would even notice me is a miracle. So mm. that, you know, I, I can't thank them. Oh, no. And also the nice thing about being a webcomic is unlike all the other nominees, we get our URL included in the, <laughs> in the press release. It says, here's the name of the, here's the name of the nominee. And here's where you can find it online, which not a lot of other print projects get. Well, that is that true. Is and uh, hopefully it boosts some traffic. Oh, you know, certainly. Someone. Certainly. That's good. That's yeah. good. And I'll be honest, you know, Crisis Zone, that was, you know, that, that was like the, like t- like Titanic, right? The year that movie came out. Of course, <laughs> it was just going to steamroll regardless of the quality of everyone else. So. Yeah, it, it it's tough. I also don't have much of a name in comic in the comic book world. And a lot of those awards are very much comic book, spinner rack, direct market centric. And uh, I don't have any... I don't think I've got any uh, brand awareness there. So I'd like to change that at some point. But, uh, you know, I'm also happy to be, uh, you know, running uh, hidden from everybody else in a way. <laughs> you are that's... super, super niche. That's that's what you mean, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm happy with my audience. I'm happy with uh, <laughs> what I can do. I don't have anybody to answer to except my Patreon supporters and uh, and Eric on Twitch. But other than that, it's... <laughs> It's great. Yeah, and it's 
easier to ignore me <laughs> than, you know, when you got an audience of millions or, or corporate bosses. So I think that's a, a good segue, I think, for our listeners. Um, why don't you start off about, like, a little bit about your personal professional background and where, when, how you got started? Because you've been doing this for quite a long time, right, Steve? And I mean yeah. that in a... <laughs> no, no, I, uh, no, it's, 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 I'm, I'm, uh, yeah, I've been doing this a very, very long time. When I post my videos on YouTube, I, I say I've been doing web comics for a very, very long time. Um, uh, I've been, I've been a cartoonist forever. As far back as I can remember, I was encouraged to draw and, um, I basically just never stopped. I was drawing web, com- I was drawing comic strips in my school newspapers and in college I was involved with the school newspaper and was doing a comic strip there. I ended up becoming editor of the paper. There wasn't a journalism program at my college. So somehow a advertising art student was able to become editor of the paper. And we basically turned it into a uh, comics zine. There was a bit of news. There was a front yeah. page that was news. There was a back page that was news. And in between, it was all comics. Where did you go to school? What's that? Where did you go to school? Oh, uh, 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 State University of New York, uh, Farmingdale on Long Island, New York. It's uh, oh, okay. I think it's Suffolk County, or maybe on the Suffolk Nassau County line. It, it, yeah, that, that's Suffolk, Suffolk, Suffolk County. I'm from I'm from New York as well, so I oh. and I understand. <laughs> yeah, so it was a it was a, a great uh, community college. Um, I studied advertising, and from there I got an internship to work at newspapers, and that kind of took me out of comics for a while. I was I went to Washington D.C. Uh, worked for a news service and the newspaper. And it was around that time I started meeting <laughs> other artists who worked at the newspaper and they were all cartoonists or they were people who wanted to be cartoonists or illustrators, but found themselves working at newspapers. It was like less glamorous, but a steady job. Mm. And uh, it was at a period when news magazines still existed and the newsstands still existed in a serious way. So if you could get into the, you know, if you would be at the, in the Rolodex of all these art directors, you can make a really good living as a freelancer. Mm, and so that was kind fun. of what a lot of the uh, people I worked with, that's what they really wanted to do. It was nice to have the day job. It was nice to have the health insurance. But a lot of them wanted to be cartoonists for The New Yorker and to do the covers of Time magazine and stuff like that. Mm. Um, and so I was working on that as my path. And then, this, then the Internet kind of happened. Um, by the Internet, I mean web browsers. And um, that became a big distraction in my life because it was such a you know i i I grew up not thinking there was much going to be much opportunity for me and the whole idea that it was almost like this a whole new section of the board of monopoly opened up for the first time like everything was locked you knew where the world you know you knew dc you knew marvel you knew who the players were yes there could be upstarts like kamiko and image and stuff like that and first comics there could be these other players but the world of media seemed like it was getting smaller and smaller basically where we are now it's like Mm -hmm. it but at the time, it looked like a whole new section opened up and it gave people hope. Uh, and suddenly it reduced the barriers to entry. I didn't have to pitch my work to a publisher. I mean, I was still at that time planning to self-distribute, not self-distribute, excuse me, self-publish my comics. I, this is, we're talking about the early 90s. I was going through the route of Capital City distribution and Diamond Comics distribution to get my comic into comic book stores. And I was even part of that Dave Sims Spirits of Independence tour that happened in 94. 495 oh wow and uh that's where i met a lot of people um people who i still i'm i work with rick veach in particular who i work with but it's so so we had this there was this existing avenue of the direct market and getting your comics that way but then the internet opened up and suddenly i could do web comics and forget everybody else i could reach 
well, it wasn't a huge market at the time because you know there was still bandwidths were terrible, bandwidth speeds were terrible, monitors were small. So, so for context for our listeners, this is the era of dial-up, right, and and GeoCities and uh, yeah, so, Earthlink yeah. still, right, AOL, <laughs> AOL addresses, and uh, Netscape was the browser. Google didn't exist. People were using Alta Vista and web crawler and all these other, you know, impossible to search engines. It was, you know, I actually was, there was a, I live in Florida nowadays and there was a uh, hurricane roll through and I've been cleaning up all this, going through all these old boxes, consolidating some paper boxes and putting stuff into plastic bins, things like that. And finding, I found at least two print magazines from that time where they basically were, they were printing, here are the websites to check out. It was a newsstand publication of websites to check out. And it was it's such a weird thing that could that the idea that you can even collect in print a subset of the of the websites. It's weird because almost like there was a period where it became so obsolete so quickly. There were so many websites and so many projects and so many things. And now it's almost like it's going the other way where things seem to be collapsing again, where people only visit 10 websites, whatever apps are on their phone. They don't want to do not even on the second screen of their phone. If it's not on the first screen of their phone, they're not checking it out. The world seems so much smaller. And so oh, yeah. much like we've got these blinders on. I told you I was going to ramble. I just did. Uh, <laughs> no, that's good. It's a good. It, yeah, it, it's a good. It's good. Uh, segue, I would say, because I mean, I, I agree with the whole idea of like collapsing, because I mean, I'm one of those people where if it's not on the first page of Google, that means everything, everything after that is a lie. Like, that's how I see it. Right. So and, how I was going to say, so how curious, how did you. What was your, in terms of making comics and making art, what was your your first foray into the space? What was that like? Mm-hmm. Well, back in college, I was working traditionally. I was working with pen and paper and zip a tone and duo shade board, and everything was done mechanically, uh, physically. By the time I got to working in newspapers, um, the Macs were, the computers were sufficient and the output was sufficient. Like there was, back in college, laser printers had basically just come out so you finally had desktop the ability to take uh the stuff you had on your little mac screens your tiny gray nine inch mac screens print them out in high quality still paste them down on boards and have them shot by cameras and made turn into the school newspaper so the technology wasn't quite there for me to work on my own comics that way in college but by the time i got to the newspaper i started working on all my comics digitally so my first comic in 1994 was called uh the first one that was distributed uh, it was called avant-garde not very good um but uh all illustrated in a program that's similar to adobe illustrator it was called freehand all vector so it was a, millions of mouse clicks to get <laughs> to do what i wanted to, um, but it had the un, it had undo it basically gave me cow- the ability to be to second guess myself to say okay yeah. I, can, I can move things and i could do things i was able to do some things that were really visually interesting gradients stuff you could never in a million years do with zipatone and traditional tools um but that got me self-publishing i did three issues of that again it got me in the self in, uh into the spirits of independence tour with i don't know who's it james owen and uh batten lash and steve Bissett and rick veach and dave sim and um paul pope tons of people back then who were self-publishing because we thought this is this is the thing and that was just as the direct market of comics was kind of collapsing it was like during that tour when capital where where marvel was leaving the direct market to be to to purchase heroes world and distribute themselves mm. um so there's a collapse in the comic book 
direct market. Again, I, I'm not sure how much your audience is concerned with comic books versus online. Oh, they they'll they'll listen to what we put out. Okay, <laughs> fair enough. Because you know what, <laughs> listeners, you get this for free. So. They'll take what they get. Um, yes. So it, it was at a time when the the comic book and that that Marvel pulling out of the direct market. And the direct market was this thing. Originally, comics were in newsstands. You probably covered all this stuff on the show, that they were in newsstands. And when they finally go to the direct market, the real secret sauce to that was n- no returns. When a comic shop bought a book, you they were stuck with it. And so what that meant was the margins for the publishers were a lot better because they didn't have to worry about getting, you know, being asked for their money back. You know what I mean? Or it wasn't this. It was basically what you you buy it, you're stuck with it, wash your hands, move on to the next book. And uh, those really... Um, predictable orders or those pre or that pre-ordering system versus essentially consignment was um a huge thing that allowed Kamiko and first and a lot of those early scrappy companies uh to uh to exist and teenage mutant ninja turtles and all that other stuff so i wasn't part of the to turtles wave but this was sort of like hoping that there was going to be a second wave and you did have some mm. stuff that was happening that was really exciting like uh i don't know uh Castle Waiting and uh, Stray Bullets and all that indie right. stuff from like the very beginning. And that also got me to my first SPX, which uh, the Small Press Expo in, in Bethesda, Maryland, uh, which I was really involved with for many years. That was sort of my local convention for the longest time. And um, uh, and that's how I ended up being. I was executive director of that for two years, like in the early mid-aughts. Um, but uh but so it was it was it, I, all that time I was still working digitally and I really kind of went back to physical cartooning in in the, the late uh, like t- like 2008 2009 I uh, IDW asked me to draw Star Trek and when I was doing that I had been doing some traditional artwork um, I was starting to bring back pen and ink instead of just computers but uh, doing Star Trek I was like oh I want to have original art to sell when I'm done. Because there are Star Trek fans who will want a page of original artwork. And, you know, I, I, I mean, I jokingly put a page of my own comic on a diskette to bring to a convention <laughs> if they wanted to buy original art. It's like the early <laughs> NFT. Um, wow. Oh, that's that's that's, oh, don't worry. that's I, clever. It was technically an, well, it's an NFT because I chopped down one tree while on my way to sell that one diskette. I want to make sure there's at least some environmental damage. Um, uh, uh. Uh, but uh but but you know I I say here's original art it's like it was, it was a diskette you know nothing and I never I never sold it was more of a prop on the comic table, um, but uh, uh, I was doing traditional art and thankfully I had got my traditional art chops back I, they had gotten so rusty that when the iPad came around um, that I, I was comfortable with pen and ink again and so the, the stylus was something I could use and I wasn't it wasn't just all mouse clicks which it was what it had been for the first. 10 years and 15 years of my career. Okay. And in that, so in then, that time, I did some other little projects. I did, I drew a story for dark horse comics, the escapist. I wrote an Aquaman story for DC comics. Um, is that the, uh, the escapist based on the amazing adventures of Cavalier and clay? Exactly. Exactly. I think I, I think I own that actually. <laughs> well, I drew a story that, uh, Stuart Moore wrote and, um, yeah, it was, a, it was a, it was amazing because I someone I got contacted by Dark Horse about writing this story and I'm or drawing the story and I'm like okay yeah that sounds great and they sent me this we'll send you the script and I'm getting the script and I'm scrolling and scrolling it was like 30 pages it was this big story mm-hmm. 
I thought it was going to be like eight pages in an anthology. And uh, it was this huge story. And uh, Dino Schutz was the editor. Um, and uh, it was a great project. Great project. And then I, I, again, I drew Star Trek for IDW. And I've done some odd covers here and there, like uh, Power Rangers or uh, Adventure Time or something. <laughs> So uh, I wanted to ask you a question about the technical side of things since you've been doing digital for so long. And you said started off with freehand and then probably went into uh, Adobe Illustrator once that came out. So when it came to drawing with the mouse, were you just freehanding it in terms of the design of the figures that you wanted? And then from there going back, or did you at least like create a, uh, a sketch i do the mouse clicks on top of that the, the latter i did i i would draw on pencil on tracing paper or pen and ink um again in this flood i found mm -hmm. a ton of work that i had done um all ballpoint on like photocopy paper which i would then scan bring that in and i would draw on top of it part of it was a time-saving thing because having a vector file man i had a document just called hands and it covered like <laughs> 80% of the hand, after a while, it's like I've drawn the, I've drawn this hand this way a million times. If I move it over, I can tweak it a little bit or rotate it. And because it was vector, it would scale. It wasn't like Photoshop where if you scale something, it immediately blurs. I mean, it, it might blur right, just a little pixels. bit. Yeah, it might blur just a little right. bit, but it'll, that would accumulate over time. And uh, so anyway, anyway, that was a. Uh, yeah, no, that's, that's cool. I, I like that though. That's very clever. The idea of like having a like. A set of hands and then just simply throwing those in yeah and it, drawing hands until you you love drawing hands you know <laughs> and also when i was working on star trek it was the thing where i knew that if i get any of the dials on the bridge of the starship wrong fans would notice like i have <laughs> so i created the background digitally and i would when I, so this was a re, this is real artwork i would i would go at the time uh to kinko's and have them print on art paper i didn't have a large enough printer and they would print on the art paper um basically i had the backgrounds and left room to draw the figures and so i would get the pages back from them and i would just have to draw on the figures and drop in shadows and things like that anything organic i would draw with a brush and anything mechanical the ship i drew like 15 different views of it and then at some point i didn't have to draw it again and if i did have to draw a new view it just got added to the library of views so something i want to ask nice. about because uh, you're working in this early digital space is your series astounding space thrills uh, which I was able to read a little bit of from the Patreon, because I know you've re-released it and remastered it. Yeah. I did also see the uh, on your webpage the the version of it that had at the time cutting edge GIF animation. Uh huh. <laughs> it was a lot of it was a lot of fun to see. Like wow, it's like a time capsule. So, yeah, literally, was... 30, I think thirty. I think it's actually thirty years ago now. <laughs> that, coming that, up on it. Coming up on yeah. it. Um, I think it'll be it'll be twenty five years next year. Okay. And so I was thinking about doing it. There'll probably be a Kickstarter for like a, an omnibus, at least of the black and white stuff. Um, I'm not sure if I'll collect the color work just yet. There was an image series. Not, I, it, I enjoy parts of it, but I feel like other parts of it don't quite hold up. It was like done almost under duress at some points. I mean, it was a great project. I, there was one section of it, one book of it I love to, to death. It's sort of some, to me, it captures the spirit of what I wanted with the series. But what it was, was it's a sci-fi uh, uh, I don't know, lighthearted sci-fi adventure. 
maybe along the lines of a buckaroo bonsai. Yeah, or, that's what I was about to say. It's like that type of uh, space comedy, maybe a little bit of Flash Gordon, but it's definitely not yes. on the Absolutely. on the lighter lighter side of things. And that that was a lesson I got from working on the first project called Avant Garde, which was. Um, Chris Staros, who went on to be uh, do create top shelf comics and was a publisher for, you know, kind of a, a legendary publisher of indie comics. Um, he had done a, he had a magazine called the Staros Report, which was a zine he had done where he would review indie comics. And he reviewed avant garde basically and kind of just, just said to me, you should be doing comedy. Um, and that so that was part of it. And also I was doing an I was doing a black and white indie comic. Avant Garde was a essentially a Thunder Agents ripoff. It was kind of a yeah. a bunch of heroes with ma with uh, magic technological <laughs> weapons. And uh, oh, and so no. my, I know I know Thunder Agents. I think DC revived it a few years ago. Oh yeah, sure, of course, so. of course. Um, yeah. But so it, it was my kind of take on that. And. Um, but it was doing a superhero black and white comic, which unless you're doing comedy like The Tick, is a really tough sell because people have access to freaking Batman. Why do they need me? Um, so it was. A, I basically said, okay, I'm not going to do the com. I'm not going to do the superhero genre. I knew I was going to be printing in black and white. So let's do retro science fiction. I like the ray guns. I like Star Trek. I'm a big sci-fi guy. And so if it's black and white and retro, suddenly it's like, oh, that's. It's not a. It's not because he doesn't have the money to print in color. <laughs> it's like. <laughs> It, it's in, he means to do it that way he's being all retro and and uh you know so that it was really just a, it was understanding i had to i had to do this in black and white so what can i create that suits that uh medium um simultaneously i did the web comic which was in full color uh because you know it's the web so i could do anything and that's also because it was on the web what else can i do and and gif animation was a thing i was you know very familiar with from web design I'm like, okay, how can I do some, how can I showcase animation in comics without turning it into animation? Because a big thing for me was animation and motion comics rob comics of so much. They, the whole point is comics are your speed. They're always set to your cadence. You, the speed you read it, you go back and read a panel. There's no lag. There's no back button. It's you. It's your eyes. You're in control of the whole thing. Uh, okay, there could be a back button, but by, by, by and large, it's still you in control. Of the you're the motive power of the thing, and if you, it's animation, suddenly, you know, you can have a comic on in the background. You know, it's moving without you. Uh, you could, you, you know, your attention can drift. Your attention, you can, you can definitely read a page and kind of be dozing off. That's absolutely happened. But by and large, if you're reading, it's you. It's all you. So anyway, I was really trying to make it so. Okay, how can I do this? keep it comics but still have animation and not have it some really the early mistakes people would make would be like okay someone's firing a gun and it fires and it loops and it loops so the character has infinite bullets right because that's you've screwed up because you can't have that part looping it always has to be something which can conceivably loop such as um falling down a, a, a an endless tunnel because the character you, you the reader will move on without messing up the story uh so it was fun to play with that format. The when I did post the animated uh, things, a lot of people would say, "Oh, this is the future." I'm like, "No, it's not the future. It's just a it's a novelty." Um, but it was awesome. It, it also, those were the ones that got the most attention at the time because it was suddenly, you know, I, I'm as a mediocre uh, ripoff of Steve Rude, Russ Manning, kind of that. And my cartoonings was never, more, you know, I wanted to be Mac Rayboy and one of those guys. My work was never that good. 
So at least I, it could be animated, you know, like what, what, what do I have around here that I can do that will make my work stand out and make it better than my mediocre skills? And that's dancing monkey, as they call it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Any anything I could do to get a little more eyeballs yeah. on. Uh, that leads me because I'm kind of curious because you mentioned like it was a hit. What was how in back in that era of like digital comics, like how did you know you had a following or there was a community? Because like other comic creators we talked to, well, they got started like the mid 2010s. So they had Tumblr, you had Twitter, you had message boards. Sure. Nowadays we have comments. So how did you know in that era there were people following you? Uh, two ways. I had a mailing list from the get-go, uh, and I would email people every day. There wasn't the kind of spam filters you had today. There wasn't. I would never put anybody on the list who didn't want to be on the list, and you could unsubscribe with a click. But uh, back then, there wasn't even PHP and SHTML and CSS. Those things didn't really exist. Everything was very crude in terms of how it was coded. Um, so you had a like. I ended up finding like a, a CGI script that would help manage my mailing list. Or I did something a little bit different. I actually kind of invented something that I thought was all. Basically, I created the share tag before the share tag existed. <laughs> I created this embed tag for my comic. We call it tune casting. There's a Tom Spurgeon interviews me about it at some point in the comics journal. Um, <laughs> but it was the idea was an embed tag. My, my thinking was, again, I could either get everybody in the Internet to try to come to me or I could make it so that I could give people a piece of code and they could put it on their own website and not have to come back to me. And suddenly I had hundreds, thousands of websites that had embedded this code on it. So they never had to come to me. And what the code did was it, 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 it basically the image tag, oh, it was two bits of, oh, I won't go into the technical, but anyway, it did a couple of things. I mean, because it allowed you to put in the, the HTML, I mean, yeah, into the end. Yeah. Right. And this was before you could do PHP. Up on the, the screen. The, yeah. So right. Now, nowadays, it's super easy to do this. But back then, the image, it was an image tag that pointed to a CGI script the H the href around the whole thing pointed to a client side image map on my server, which I could update. It was it was basically even at the time I was using a very low tech solution, um, mm -hmm. and uh, almost even an ancient solution because back when the original image maps were on graphics on the web, it was like here's a picture of the United States. You click on something that would ping a server. To tell, to interpret where the person clicked. That was before you could even have the. Imp Nowadays, that information would be on the page, so that right. your browser loads that information. You click, and your browser tells it where to go. Back then, the browsers couldn't do that. It had to go check the server. So that was a benefit to my little code because mm. I could update where the ad. Because I had an ad position in there, and I sold an I sold advertising. Um, That's wow. That is that is clever as hell. <laughs> but but you know, it immediately became old-fashioned and uh, it was a pretty lucrative thing um you know it didn't replace my day job but it helped me keep making web comics and i ended up doing about 500 episodes of that uh, and so there were i also had the, the logs i had all the server logs people back then when people didn't know the difference between a hit and a page view i was a bit more <laughs> savvy than that um, but i could tell how many people were viewing it i could tell how many people were viewing the graphic because it wouldn't even be my views would show me which servers were showing it so like space.com had the comic and all these different places were running my web comics. And then I shared that code with other cartoonists. So John Gallagher and Marty Bowman and Jenny Gregory. And uh, then Mike, uh, then Joey Manley of uh, 
adventurestrips.com and all the modern tales, he wanted to do something and asked me, hey, do you mind if I do this too? I'm like, absolutely. Um, and so we basically just shared the code far and wide. Nice. That's really, really cool. rad because it's it kind of just blows my mind that I'm assuming this is all self-taught, right? Like like this is not stuff you could have ever learned in like school or yeah. Or... But well, the part the coding part I couldn't I didn't know, but I did know a guy who had worked at the newspaper I worked at who was working on the coding side. And I said, okay, can I give you 500 bucks you write this code? He's like, yes. <laughs> and so he did it. And so because uh, it probably took him 10 minutes. Because uh, what I was asking him to do is so low tech. Um, you just want to show one graphic? Yeah. <laughs> and I just wanted to change the name of it by the date. So it was like AST underscore daily underscore the date. And uh, um, so it was pretty simple. But um, uh, yeah, it was, it was. But it was great because at the. Oh, so at the time also, I had a, a huge benefit that had the Spirits of Independence tour that happened with Dave Sim. That's what the independent thing was happening at the beginning of shows like Ape and SPX and all the other ones, pre-MOCA, all these, all these conventions. Um, so I met Rick Veach and in 1997 or so, he reached out to me and said, Hey, I want to do a website for my comic. I want to put, I want to be on online. And that was pretty forward thinking for 1997. Um, he knew I had a website for my stuff. And, uh, I had just got back from a, I was speaking at a conference in Athens, Greece. It was a conference of people who throw on, who throw conferences it was a conference conference. What? <laughs> that that is that is a, a what's it called a Christopher Nolan film right there. Yeah, the, the Inception uh-huh. conference. So so here are all these people who throw events, having an event. And they brought me in to speak about internet because they don't know internet. And here I was, I was, gosh, well, I was, if I was a kid, I was 27, 26, 27, and um, um, and I'm going there and speaking all in front of all these people about you. You're, and basically it's riffing saying you guys should put your conventions online you know have an online <laughs> convention it'd be great and i come back rick's and i'm talking with rick he wants to do a website and, I'm, and that's still kick, kick, kicking in my head i'm thinking also as a cartoonist how can i benefit from rick having a website and i'm thinking well what if we bring in off what if we get everybody what if we get everybody together we get steve Bissett, we get alan moore and we get uh, totalman and truman and all these everybody has a, a booth and we do a website, and I think it was Rick who might have said Comic-Con.com. Because at that point, San Diego hadn't gotten Comic-Con.com. Chicago Comic-Con hadn't gotten Comic-Con.com. And if they did, they it was Comic-Con.com they would, or .org or whatever. Mm-hmm. So we got Comic-Con.com, and we launched it as this kind of virtual comic convention, which was a message boards again, pre-social media. Mm-hmm. And so in 1998, Comic-Con.com launches, and it was a ton of cartoonists and message boards, and that's what passed for social back in the day and it was an awesome time and you know, we we had early trolls we had flame wars <laughs> all the all the modern joys wow. yeah but you, you had it in the prototypical form and yeah and and rick and i could be elon musk and we could shunt people back then the solution i had our solution back then was we had was, our message boards were called the panels and so it was like a comic convention. So here are the panel rooms. And so each one was a different panel. And then we also had a section called the gutters, which was the stuff which wouldn't fit in the panels. It was a place where we would kind of, it was, it was, uh, I don't know what you'd call it. It was, uh, like you ban people to that part. Not, not ban it. This material basically saying, okay, this, you've turned this material. You've basically started a fight here. Fights don't belong in this room. 
we, we put you in the gutters. We didn't delete what you said. We just put it in a in an area where it belonged. Ah, uh, okay. So you essentially sent them oh. to the gulag. Yeah, or limbo. It was, but it was all <laughs> visible. It was all visible. I mean, it, the, the the stuff never went away. It was just, and very rarely did we ever have to ban anybody. So mm. it was it was. It was awesome. Oh, it's gonna say it reminds me of like the timeout box in hockey, right? Like they can, right. They can keep Absolutely. they can keep fighting. Yellow but, card yeah, and the red card, and then yeah, yeah. And you keep punching each other, but it won't interrupt the rest of the game. So. <laughs> yeah, not around the breakables. Yeah. Yeah, but it just yeah, it just kind of astounds me that like you know you you seem to be kind of part of this wave of like digital pioneer, but also like this indie comic sensibility. Because at least in my experience, from the from the cartoons I've run into, like the indie comics people who come from like the zine, punk rock, tabling world, they like stay away from digital. They, they they've never ventured in that world. They don't know nothing about it. And then vice versa, like the people who are primarily digital digital comics, they came in this era of like you know, mid, later 2000s, Tumblr, social media, vertical scroll. So they don't really know anything about tabling and physical indie. Like that type of world, so it's just right. kind of astounding that you you kind of took this indie comic ethos but apply it to the digital space or exploring that early digital space. And and Rick Veach is a big part of that. I mean, being uh, working with him in and starting ComicCon.com, he's very much like let's have a hands-off approach. Let's that he recognized it as this big deal, and he he was coming from the point of view of, uh, you know, his his work had been uh, total indie comics, like the head shops and the the true rebel comics. And he brought that to the digital side of things. And it was, I don't know, it was, it was always really good. He was, and it was an ex, he's an excellent partner. We still do a lot of educational comics together. He has always been a person who's been like, we, he had learned enough lessons from comics and we basically have been working the same way ever since. One of the big things that happens with a, a partnership, a partnership of any kind is that at some point someone says, uh, uh, it was all me. That was my idea. You know, it's like that sort of thing where people start getting, uh, I don't know, competitive. And we've never been that way. It's like none of this would have happened without Rick. And Rick says none of this would have happened without Steve. And as long as we know that this partnership is, you know, thanks to each other and always stay grateful. I could have I could have a million great ideas. And if Rick's not there to you know talk me off a ledge or tell me 99 percent of them are garbage. <laughs> yeah. You know, then it's not going to work. So he's he's great. He's great. All right, and then kind of want to pivot a little bit because you mentioned, you know, you got you got on the ComicCon.com and for all these conventions. Is that is that what led you to be involved with the Eisners, or did that come about in a different way? Uh, it probably contributed. So in '98, the we launched ComicCon.com. That runs for a few years. Um, social media and the and there was eventually there was a bit of a uh, uh, blogs showed up around then so again comic-con and commas pre-blog um still no youtube there's still very little video online the bandwidths just aren't there yet but um uh let me see where where, where was that so i'm oh, sorry i saw that the text pop up got me confused <laughs> oh, sorry. All right. so apologize we had some technical difficulties i had to add to go back to the call gotcha yeah. My uh my internet decided to reset itself, so I'm on my phone now. So it's all good. Oh, the video's crisper. Um, it, right. Um, so, uh, Comic Con to Com, we'll cut all that in post. Uh, <laughs> Comic Con to Com launches in '98, and uh, I do the Spirits of Independence tour. 
Uh, I get to know a lot of cartoonists that way. And then I'm involved in the Small Press Expo, which also launched in, I think, 94. Uh, Small Press Expo is kind of this, they call, it's called the premier North American independent comic expo. It's in Bethesda, Maryland. It's been running every year. It was sort of like the big event for indie comics every year. And uh, I had set up at every single one of those. And in 90, I'm sorry, in 2004, 2005, I was executive director. I think that's what those two years were. Um, and it was around that time that Jackie Estrada of the Eisners asked me to be an Eisner judge. So I also, part of being executive director meant I wasn't publishing anything. You know, I, I hadn't put out a new book, so I wasn't, not, it's not like I was submitting anything for the Eisners. And that's sort of what you want from a judge. You want someone who knows comics, who's been involved in comics, has a history, loves comics, but at the same time, isn't like producing legendary, you know, isn't producing anything that they would like to be considered because you can't, you know, they have very strong conflict of interest rules. There was a, I think I specifically mentioned that there was a, I think The Escapists was nominated. And because I was involved in that book, I couldn't vote on it. I basically recused myself. And I think their system at the time was that if you don't vote, your vote counts as the average of the other ju other jurors. So whatever the average vote the other four jurors gave it was what my vote became. So it's not like they took me they they didn't they didn't hurt the thing because I was involved with it, but neither could I get involved one way or the other. So that was a, a pretty fair system, I thought. Um, so I was a, a Eisner judge, and the preceding few years. Every time the Eisner Award nominations came out, web comics people were like, snubbed again. Why won't they ever take us seriously? Why won't they ever take us seriously? And the first question I asked when Jackie said, would you like to be an Eisner judge? I said, yeah, sure. And how do we get web comics to be considered? And uh, it turns out no one had ever pitched them on it. It basically required <laughs> a proposal. No one ever said, here, here's our proposal for it. All they would do is complain when it was over and kind of expect things to happen. And then, you know, the anger subsides. And I guess if Twitter were around then, maybe the the rage would have blossomed yeah, into something uh, way um, more. <laughs> but, but then there wasn't anything like that. So I said, okay, we have to write a proposal, a proposal. I said, well, what are the rules? And the main problem that, that a lot of web comics had, and the reason why I think maybe the proposals never happened was that web comics at the time were very much comic strips. There weren't a ton of long form comics in at that time. Um, and if there were, it was like Astounding Space Thrills. It was episodic, but it's still, to a comic book fan, it looked like comic strips. It was the shape of the browser. You know, no one was on their phones. Nothing was vertical. Everything was low bandwidth. It was terrible. Um, uh, and you think, but you think of the popular comic strips at the time, PVP, Penny Arcade, all that stuff. And the Eisners have strict rules about we're the comic book awards and the Rubens, the National Cartoonist Society, they do the comic strips. So we don't, we, as the Eisners... Speaking for a moment, as the Eisners were like, we do not do comic strips. And they were like, aren't all these web comics comic strips? I said, no, 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 not all of them, not all of them. And so I wrote rules. And part of it was that in the end, the very first version of it didn't accept comic strips. So in 2005, when they were finally added to the ballot, comic, a web comic strip wasn't eligible. And I, and I remember talking with people. I think I called a few people. I might have called Scott McCloud. I might have called Scott Kurtz. And said, "Here's I'm working on this. I'm working on this. Let me run this by you." Um, and it was, it was it was specifically with Scott Kurtz. It was like saying, um, it, "It's not PVP wouldn't be eligible, not yet. We're getting our foot in the door. Um, let's just get in there. Let's just get in there. And even if not all of us are getting, not all of us are getting through. 
But if we can get a few of us through, um, and if that's what happened the next year, um, John Gallagher, who the uh, Max Meow, uh, Buzzboy creator, um, the very next year, they ex- the, jur- the jury modified the rules to allow comic strips. So it, it worked. It worked. So, but web comics were added in 2005, and by 2006, I think everybody was included. I wasn't involved in any of the decision making about digital comics versus comic strips or versus right. web comics. Right. That whole, they, have, they have that split now. That, yeah, sorry, that's a whole other thing. A couple, couple years ago, which is yeah. still doesn't make sense to me, but whatever. Um, I think it kind of does. I mean, you have to. I mean, I mean, assuming it's different between like an ongoing versus like something a one shot or a, a one shot story. At least my, my, my sense is one is that you read online and the other one you read offline. In my okay. head, that's the distinction. Like, can you download it? It stands alone thing. But if it's a if it's something you read online, uh, I don't know. Eyes are people. Eyes are people. Let us know if you're, if you're listening. <laughs> yeah, but they always get that. They they always get it. They never get it right because in the end, the 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 judges, if the judges ended up putting a comic strip into it, they would still accept it because that's the that's what the judges have decided. I don't think I think I think the I think uh, Jackie and the Eisner committee or the Eisner organizers would say, no, no, that's that's a graphic novel. You can't put that in the you know, right, right. foreign language category, for instance, because it's not foreign language. They would try to say early on before you even consider it. But I think once the votes are cast, they would just go with what the, the judges say. Mm-hmm. And plus with webcomic, like you, even up, the three of us, if we were asked to define webcomic versus digital comic, we'd have trouble. Yeah. Unless, unless, unless one were, the only thing I would say is like, because, you know, there's like that snob who says, like, I don't read comics. Right. Do that. Like, I don't read webcomics. I read digital graphic novels. Oh, God. <laughs> What's really weird is so many of those non uh, digital comics and stuff were stuff that you couldn't read. Like, nobody could read it. Like, it was the Stella app was around for a little while there. And yeah. it was all paywalled. So congrats to the nominees. I can't read it. <laughs> yeah. It, it's weird. Yeah. A weird time. I think that's a good segue to talk about your big current ongoing project right now, uh, the Middle Age. So I'm kind of curious. I want to. I like to hear like how that came about, and because you've been someone who's been involved in digital space from the very beginning, like how did you go about navigating it in this world where Webtoon and Tapas and now other platforms are coming up, and now there's social media, and because I know something you always extol a lot on your when you're streaming is that you don't want to make it so your comic is only on one platform you want to diversify because in case all right like with twitter if one platform goes away it's it's you're screwed yeah for sure for sure um i definitely started with all everything i had in mind in the past but basically everything i'd learned along the way um i brought to this project it grew out of i okay so out of astounding space thrills there was a character named bloop who was a little space monkey I did a webcomic featuring him, and it's a, it was a kid's webcomic. And I did that maybe 10 years ago. And it was fairly popular. It had like 14,000 or so fans on Facebook. The big problem with it is, though, when you're doing kids' comics online, you're in a weird place. You don't want to sell to kids online. What, do you, what am I going to do, ask a kid to become my Patreon supporter? Yeah. Am I asking, <laughs> right? It's like, how do you, you want to put ads on that? You want to put, you want to show ads to kids? I mean, no. So it's all gross. So, so it was one thing I really wanted to do this kid story. Um, my avenue was web comics because that's kind of one of my homes. Um, 
But in the end, it was the fact that I didn't want to sell to kids online. So I basically it had a chapter break, a kind of a cliffhanger ending. And I used that finished story as a pitch to try to hopefully get it made into a graphic novel. But even at the time, I uh, or a few years later, uh, an editor at Webtoons reached out to me and said, do I want to pitch anything? I included Bloop. And they said, well, we don't do stuff for kids. And it, to me, that they must have had that same kind of journey where at some point they were like, we can't market this at kids, nor do we want their money. Um so that explains part of the ecosystem where you can have all these middle grade books and a huge world of kids comics and it's just not online. Um, so I did that. I want to start a new project. Um, uh, an editor at Andrews McNeil, who is of Go Comics, I met her at an SPX, Small Press Expo, which I was set up. Uh, and I still had Bloop. And I had associated with Bloop these kind of retro postcards. Uh, the idea was there's... Bloop is this story about a little green space monkey who uh, basically just wants to find the perfect tree and be left alone. And that's when the big corporation lands and robots <laughs> roll out. and They want to destroy the forest and everything like that. It's a super simple story. Um, but that's but, basically Avatar way of water right now. Well, $200, no, $200 million. Dollars. It was, it's, but it's, to me, it was more like, it, it wasn't, <sighs> There, there was, there's no, there's no savior in the story. There's none of that awful. There's none of that parable nonsense. It's more like this is a little, this is a little monkey who just wants to be left alone, home sweet home. Uh, uh, and to me, it's much more like an indie creator. I want to create my thing, and I don't want the behemoths to steamroll my my little project. Mm. Um, and. Uh, but but so I was speaking to this editor and I had these little retro postcards and she she thought those were funny and thought if I want to do a comic strip at the time, I was also working on a book called The Art of Richard Thompson. Richard Thomas Thompson was a great cartoonist. He did cul-de-sac and I was the art director on the book for that. Um, and uh, so she was his editor. She was Richard's editor. And so that's how, that's how we got connected. And so she said, do you ever want if you want to do a comic strip, let me know. And I'm like, you know, I grew up reading comic strips. I grew up. That was my whole life was Peanuts and Garfield and The Amazing. When I was in, when I was a kid, The Amazing Spider-Man had a TV show. It was awful. And The Hulk had a TV show. It was less awful. And <laughs> the newspapers had uh, the newspapers had comic strips. Somehow Marvel had convinced them, hey, we'll do a comic strip. And uh, the Spider-Man one is still going. Um, I think it's still going. Uh, and so. My grandmother, we used to take these comics and put them in the – she would cut them out of the newspaper and put them in these composition notebooks, and those would be my presents for Christmas and birthdays and things like that. So I love these comics. And someone said, you want to do a comic strip? I'm like, oh, man, I've never really done one intentionally. Like I've never really done one as an adult. And I'm like, yeah, I, yes, I, I want to. I want to do one. And that's how the middle age – I mean that was the spark that said, what am I going to do? And I'm like, okay, I'm a middle-aged guy. I was I went to Maryland has this amazing Renaissance festival. I was there and I was thinking this this is amazing. It's ridiculous. There's someone walking by with like a, a Pepsi and a and a turkey leg. <laughs> <laughs> and it's so dumb. It's so dumb well, and so it, much fun. Is it is that like breaking the rules of the Renaissance fair to have a Pepsi? Yeah, it never, right. it never stopped them from like the 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 food court vendors from making a quick buck. <laughs> but there's also so many people at Ren Fair don't dress up. You know? Oh, okay. They're just you know, the normies and they're, they're gawking and having fun. And I was there in a button down shirt, you know, mm. two, two, Ren, two Ren fairs later, I'm in full leather armor. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, 
it was it was just fun. It was a fun environment. And it also called up all the stuff as for my kid from my childhood where I was playing like Dungeons and Dragons and the Hobbit Rankin Bass Hobbit uh, animated special, which I still think is the, one of the greatest pieces of art ever made by kind of a proto Studio Ghibli. Um, uh, amazing thing. And it was one of these things where I just I, I watched it. I watched it whenever it was on television and there was an audio version of it available as a LP from the library and nobody in my town could ever get that album out if you ever won it was impossible north babylon long island new york sorry it was i always had it i checked it out every week (laughs) on a loop it had gorgeous artwork it burnt into my brain and uh so a fantasy story and that's where the middle age kind of happened it was like okay i'm gonna write a story about being a middle-aged person who's had romance troubles who has uh all the silliness and all the dumbness of like all the things I love into one thing. And if this is the last thing I do, uh, and I felt like that I was going into it going, if this is the last comic I do, because I might have to get a real job at some point, at some point I could be, a, I go be an art director or go be, I don't know, a greeter. I'm at that age. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, you know, but this would be my last comic. And uh, it had, it had some advantages. It had Patreon. That was a thing. So if early on, as before even launched, people who had supported Bloop and some of my other projects were already, I had like five Patreon supporters before I even launched. So mm. immediately it was a thing where, oh, I can't let them down. Um, which was more than, I've, I mean, because I, I, had, I had advertisers back in the day, but it wasn't like, it didn't feel as personal. It didn't feel as heartfelt. Mm. Uh, and so Webtoons and Tapas, came back to the, that part of the question, that didn't really matter to me in a way until a little bit later on where they finally were gaining some traction four or five years ago i was already i don't know 18 months into my comic and t- webtoons and tapas were serious webtoons was absolutely on the ascent at that time um and uh i was like oh i have to repurpose my work and i didn't initially at first i was basically taking my comic strip format or my basically squarish format and putting it onto webtoons awkwardly but I, one of the things with, with webtoons is the readers are okay with it if it's consistently the same. I think some people go to webtoons and they expect a 30 episode thing, and they'll they'll I'm sorry a 30 panel episode, and they will come to the middle age and see it's a four panel grid and go, nah, eh, you know it doesn't it's not 30 panels it's not what I want. But I also mm-hmm. thought my stuff is so weird and so not manga. I thought who on webtoons is even going to want to read it. Because I had a bias. I thought I thought looking at the front page of Webtoons and the kind of stuff they were commissioning that they wouldn't care for my style because because no one cares for my style. I actually that's not it's not just Webtoons. It's anybody. I don't I can't imagine why anybody reads my comic because it's not like anything. People think, is it European? Well, Phil has actually managed to read all of it. So he can tell. He, he yes. you, know, you got one person. But <laughs> right. I, I'm all the way up to, uh, what is it, episode 238? Oh, so, wow. yeah. So, but does it does it come across as, as American, as European? My style is just dumb. I don't know if it's got a... You know, it's it it's like a combination of all those things. So, like, especially in the early, in the very beginning, it reads very European. Um, Especially the character design of Quip kind of reminds me of um, Asterix. So that's what oh. that's what it kind of felt like to me. Okay, sure. Yeah, yeah. I, I, it, there's definitely, I feel it has that vibe, but like there's, there's, I think that's what makes it so tricky for the corporate publishers, the editors, because they just want everything in the box. 
Right. Like this, yeah. When you when you present them with something that is not easily defined, that's the appeal. But their brain can't comprehend it. It's like, well, like your brain can't comprehend it. Like whoa, whoa, whoa! This is way too unique. I I don't know how to describe this. This this is weird. Yeah, and, and not necessarily good, but unique. And I, <laughs> but that's how I felt when I when I started. I was at a point in my life where I was like, oh, okay. So about the style of the thing. Uh, I was trying my entire career to draw like Russ Manning and Steve Rude um, and Wally Wood and uh, all those classic cartoonists, but a very naturalistic style. At some point along the way, I started playing paintball, uh, you know, running through the woods like an idiot, shooting paint at other people. And uh, <laughs> I thought I could do a paintball comic strip because everything I do in my life is, oh, this could be a comic strip. I'm at the, you know, I'm at the Goodwill. I'm like, oh, this should be a comic strip. Anyway, um, uh <laughs> I should spend the next five years of my life, you know, doing this thing. Anyway, uh, so I was doing paintball and I thought I could do a paintball comic strip. And the problem with paintball masks are their full face to be a legit paintball because no one wants to get no one wants to get hit in the face. And all the paintball fields have huge, you know, uh, insurance policies that say everyone's that paint can only fly so fast and the full, your face has to be right, covered right. the whole time. So right. how do you have? How do you have characters emoting and how do you even identify the characters if they're all wearing the same size mask? It was their their heads had to be different shapes. And so I was in a forum and I posted the designs of these characters and they all had that kind of helmet under their arm and you could see the shape of their heads. One was diamond shaped, one looked like a road cone, one was spherical and uh, very basic geometric shapes. And I showed it and it was it was uh, Mike Waringo who had said, you've quote, you've stumbled onto a great new style. And it was like, OK, if Mike Waringo says that. I have to do it. But being a dumb person, I didn't do it for like five years. I still kept doing all the other stuff. I had to draw Star Trek. I was doing all these things. There was no outlet for this great new thing I had stumbled onto. Mm. And uh, uh, it wasn't until the middle age where I'm like, okay, here's this thing. I've wanted to do it. This is the outlet for it. It's meant to be funny. It's meant to be silly. If I can make the characters silly and fun to draw because they're so silly. If he can just, if I'm just giggling drawing his dumb face. That's such a big deal. It'll keep me motivated the whole time. How stupid can I draw this thing? How much fun can I have doing this thing? And I think that comes across. So it that's my long way long. Every everything I say has got a long story behind it. I'm sorry about that. No, it's all right. No, um, good. and then I guess like my biggest thing, especially after reading uh all those episodes, is like Kevin, <laughs> the what is it? I think the indescribable. The um, no, Kevin the yeah. How did you come up with the that character? Because like I think he like even though he showed up twice, that is that is my favorite character in this whole series. <laughs> oh man! And then you should tell. There's a great story you share on Twitch about. Oh okay. That, well, that you're running with an editor about Kevin Illegible. Well, <laughs> well, I'll, well, I'll never be published. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> I'm writing this. I so the story uh, of the Middle Age is about a knight, Sir Quimp. He page one, he finds a magic sword. And the idea is that the magic sword is a jerk and they're stuck with each other. Uh, so he's kind of a hapless knight, a romantic. He's totally, you know, he he pick his his inner vision of himself is is 10 levels higher than what he is. But he is like he is so into the adventure. He's not full of himself. He's just he's got confidence and he leads with his heart. And here he has this sword, which is the most is so cynical and so uh mean it's such a jerk every bit of new yorker that's in me comes out of that sword <laughs> and uh uh and so these are the main characters and to me they kind of grew a little bit out of laziness i thought this might be a comic strip and so the whole idea that you could have a character standing there with a sword and that's all i have to draw and i can have a conversation 
that was fantastic. I thought, oh, this is good. And uh, so anyway, as we're meeting, I'm like, I have to introduce one of the other swords. And so at some point, this creature comes out, and there's a bit of foreshadowing with this character, with this other this other sword who comes around, because there's parallels to where it is in its existence and where our hero will find himself or currently finds himself. Uh, and I'm typing I, every character I want to have this because Todd Klein's a hero of mine, the letterer Todd Klein of Sandman and a million other comics uh, mm. that a lot of characters have different fonts and um, that you can tell somebody. What I love about that is the character could be off panel and they just have to say something. And you, if, if you know that font, you know who said it. I've done right. that a couple of times. Even if you know the color, and for me, it's the color of the word balloon also has a big effect on who you are and who's saying it. Um, and so this character comes out and I'm working on, I'm trying to find the right font for this character. And I'm stumbling through all these kind of black letter gothic fonts. And I find one and I'm like, oh, I don't, I don't, I, I think this one's hard to read. I like it a lot, but I think it's very, very hard to read. And I'm like, oh, this is excellent. So the idea being that if I use this font, no one can understand what he's saying. <laughs> 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 I thought, that's, that's awesome. Also, that became his font. And the idea was that he would speak. And if you could pick a, if you're good with the font, you can read it. It's a, it's a, there's a learning curve there, but you can decipher it. Uh, but the whole idea that our hero would be like, I don't understand what he's saying. I don't understand a word he's saying to the point where I'm adding subtitles. So Kevin the Illegible grew out of, <laughs> I don't understand a word he's saying. It's uh, it's no surprise he's speaking Gothic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's quite illegible. And I, I even so there's definitely fourth wall breaking comments throughout the thing, like that it that someone would speak illegibly is stupid, and that a person might have their name might be all silent letters, and you know. <laughs> Right, which I thought was very clever because, I mean, it maximizes the use of the comic because not only not only are we looking at the visuals of, like, you know, what you put in the panels, but also playing with the speech bubble, which I feel like even a lot of gag comics don't really do that as well. Right, right. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's a line where early on where it's like someone's like Sir, Sir Barr the Redacted. Yes. And, <laughs> and that was like uh, – you can't do that in any other medium. So it's like if I can do something that can only be done in comics, I'll do it. I don't even know if the joke's going to work, but if I can only do it in comics, and I'm positive it's stuff like that got that that got at the Eisner nomination. I think you get enough Eisner judges in a room, and they're like, oh, they've seen a million comics, and they get to a Sir Bla- the Redacted. They're like, okay, okay, four points, four points for for Gryffindor. Right. I'm sorry, four, <laughs> four points for Nevermore. Let's let's we're up there. And, and it's a great joke. It's hilarious why oh. you know, me and Bill picked it as our as our pick. But you should I really think you should tell the story of the one person who didn't get it. <laughs> oh right right right. Uh, <laughs> so at some point a very nice uh, 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 colleague came up and introduced their publisher to me at a comic convention, and uh, super nice, absolutely super nice. And uh, they're flipping through the book, and they get to uh, Kevin the Illegible. And uh, his dialogue, it says, yeah, I can't read that. I, I, you'd probably have to change that. Because we're talking about, oh, yeah, publishing. I'm super excited about getting this into comic book stores. I would love to reach that audience of people. I feel I don't know if comic book stores would ever be um, big money for me. But mm-hmm. there's so many people in comic book stores who don't know who I am. And so the whole idea of just even appearing there would be amazing, especially with a publisher who can get me a lot more attention. Because um, if I self-publish there, it's a huge uphill battle. I'm buried in the back of the catalog. Um, so his publisher comes up, 
looks through it. They hit Kevin the illegible and like his head tilts a little bit. And like, yeah, I can't read that. You'd probably have to change it for a publication. Like, oh, no, no, no. That's Kevin the illegible because you can't read his text. It's illegible. And he said, yeah, but you'd have to probably change that if we wanted to go in. Like, like so nice to meet you. So nice to meet you. Just handshake. Uh, I don't want to take up any more of your time. You're great. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. We'll be in touch. Because uh, he was really nice. And maybe he's not right for – all that means to me is that he's not right for this project. Yes. You know what I mean? So that's my whole life. Is never, I'm never going to find a pro, anybody to publish my work because uh, I have stupid jokes like Kevin the Illegible in there that I won't that, budge on. I'm like, no, this is amazing. Right. That, and that editor turned out to be David Slasliff, head of HBO's Discovery. Because <laughs> <laughs> we're coming on an hour, I think. Oh, I'm uh, so I'm really, No, no, it's good. It's good. This is great. Uh, and, and this is about how long we like to do our episodes anyway. But I think something I want to kind of close it on, and this is kind of, for me, a mission statement for this podcast is to be a resource for new and emerging people who want to get into comics. You know, as someone who has had a successful webtoon for like, what, six years now, right? The anniversary. Yeah. And, you know, to to have a, web, a comic on webtoon last that long and even make, you know, money is an accomplishment. So what what advice would you give to people who want to get into this space? Um, what are kind of the lessons you've learned, you know, to, to give to people who like, I want to be on web too. I want to make a web comic. How would I go about doing it? Because me and Phil, we're trying, this is the space we're trying to go into because publishing doesn't want what we want to make. But we're having to figure this out for ourselves because Rascal, this was not, they don't. Yeah, it wasn't I, really I mean, a thing. Yeah. Oh, shit. So, oh. Let me re-invite him. Maybe he's having a internet trouble, like just like me, you know. His 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 modem decided to uh, reset itself at the wrong time. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> or maybe 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 that's Elon Musk or what too cutting in. Yeah. Sorry about that. Guys. <laughs> no worries, no worries. Sorry. But, uh, <laughs> what I was saying is that like what what advice and what lessons you know from working on WebTube for six years would you give to someone? wants to enter the space and try to make a go at it and, and make a living off of it uh okay so it's, webtoons is really really specific and mm-hmm. there's two there's a there's a primarily there's a big lesson i learned very recently i'm 53 there's a big lesson i learned at uh uh and at time i'm it pains me that it took me this long to realize it was that every project i start not only the story ha- i write all my stories with an ending in mind but I I should have started it with it's a five year mission. I should have started with this is a thing I'm going to do this for three years because a lot of the projects I've started in the past was I'm going to start this thing and do it the rest of my life and those have all failed because I didn't do it the rest of my life. They had they they started off with an uh, uh, an objective which was uh, not impossible but unreasonable. I, I think to be successful, starting off with an, a, a, a very achievable success, like it's sort of like I want to, I want to, I want to look like Chris Hemsworth versus I want to lose five pounds, right? You, know, <laughs> you start with something achievable, and um, I feel like all my projects should have started with something achievable. Given that, as crowdfunding and all these platforms emerge, and let's say you build a huge audience on webtoons, 
and then Webtoons goes away or Webtoons changes the terms of service or decides to get in bed with an AI company or who knows, just goes all in on crypto. You don't know <laughs> what's going to happen with these platforms and it's, it's, they can do so many things wrong. They're bought by a company somebody doesn't like, right? And then the audience flees. Um, we're, we're so... Um, we're so at the mercy of those platforms. So I would say start plan something that could be self-contained so that no matter where you go next, it becomes the bonus thing people get when they sign up for your Patreon. Or it's a thing you can then print and have for sale on the table next to the next project you're starting. It becomes everything you create can become this self-contained bonus thing. It's sort of like what I'm doing with re, uh, remastering all these Astounding Space Thrills episodes. They're complete. Why don't I have them available? I should have them available. Um, so I would say focus on the things that you can complete. And, and then as for Webtoons, it absolutely rewards ongoing projects. So these, these two things are a bit at odds. So I would say start with something that you know, give it, it'll be a six month project. We're going to start, this will be our first book, our first chapter, our first arc. If we find it has reached the audience we like, if it's achieved, if it's doing what we want, it's gotten us the Patreon support. It's gotten over a thousand subscribers. Whatever those benchmarks are that you've set, if it's hit those goals, keep going. And if it hasn't, cut, start something new, and then use that self-contained thing as the bonus for people who sign up for the next thing. You know, because otherwise mm. on, on Webtoons, mm. if you're not feeding it always, you will vanish into the bowels of Webtoons. There are original series which you can't find because they haven't been updated. Right. So no matter what background, I mean, if, if the goal is to get discovered by Webtoons and be turned into something, that's really, that's not how I work. I want it to succeed on my terms and I don't want it to ever be at the mercy of some editor who doesn't understand Kevin the illegible. It has to work for me, right? <laughs> and so you never know what you're doing is going to be accepted by an editor because um, it just might not be their style, you know? They they might not like Asterix or whatever. So, mm. um. I would say I would say make it something that you can continue forever, uh, but have it cut off or, or as long as you want. But make sure it's got a cutoff. Make sure we're going to do our first movie. We're going to do our first pilot episode. Mm -hmm. and, and if it gets the audience we want, we'll keep doing it. But if we don't, we still have this this beautiful thing we we've achieved. We've succeeded at. And so you kind of so you sort of plan for that success and uh, and call it a success and be and be happy with it. and. Uh, I don't know. That's that's where I would go. I don't know if if specifically what what you're looking to do is there something I could answer about or I know all my stuff is like kind of hazy. I know. I know. Well, well, like a me and we're at the very beginning, so we're not even there yet. Like we only have the one episode, and also our story is very different, right? Because it's like ongoing and oh, right. it's, a, it's a drama, not like a comedy. So we're, you know, we're still just like dipping our toe into this world and kind of like a lot of, like I said, like a lot of this we have to figure ourselves because no one we know has really tried well, to do this. Well, in that regard, if someone was going to launch one from the beginning and they said, okay, ask for, ask for my feedback on starting one, I would say start off as big as possible. Start off with the moment. Start off with the thing. You know, when you see a trailer or a fan film and it's going to be Batman versus Predator and it doesn't spend 20 minutes building up to who Batman is. It, you're like, at the first frame of it is Batman punching Predator in the face. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. You just get the people, you, you have very limited opportunity to grab people. And I would say your first episode should be a grab. It should be something where Quimp gets stabbed on episode one. 
You know, I didn't start with him losing his love, losing his sword, traipsing through the woods, can't find anything. I did that with Bloop. This, the first 10 pages before he even finds his tree, it gave me a chance to kind of, it gave me a chance to build up the world so that when it's threatened, people will hopefully feel like, oh no, I don't want to see that world go away. There's was, there was a reason for it, but it's a, it's a slow burn. And I don't think Webtoons gives you a slow burn. I mean, there's probably original series which defy that and will mess you up. Those mm-hmm. series are already paid for and they've paid for 26 episodes and it starts off with 800 panels of content. So they can do, they can afford the slow burn. For us who are scrappers in the in the canvas section, it you know have your two if 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 have both characters boning in panel one. You know, what I mean? <laughs> don't waste time. Don't waste time. That's good advice. I like that. That's I think that's the best thing to walk away from panel one. Have everyone bone. <laughs> and you know you could. I mean, in a defend. classy way. In a classy way. And this is a very in a classy, of course. Yeah. It's very tasty. Yes. Very and, uh, Hitchcock way. And, and if that doesn't work, just find a platform of terms of services. Everything's everything's covered with bars, the censorship bars on panel one. Uh, that's yeah. great. Uh, I think that is a great note to end it on. Uh, <laughs> thank you. Thank you once again, Steve Conley, for coming on our podcast. Gracie, for your presence. And one of the one, maybe the only creator we've talked about that actually has listens to the podcast. <laughs> if none of this is, if none of this makes it to air, I'm happy to re-record this whole thing. I promise to be more uh, sensible next time around. Oh no, 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 no that's Oh great. no, it's, it's, it's yeah, it's, it's definitely making it air. <laughs> yeah, and uh, like this, this is this is you know, we don't hold anything back to our listeners. Except when I edit out uh, due to that's due to technical issues because we're free. <laughs> and I think on that note, we'll call that episode. Thank you once again, Steve Conley. Uh, if people want to check out your work, where can they find you? Uh, at steveconley.com is my main website, but middleagecomic.com is where you can find the middle age. It's also available on Webtoons, Tapas, and Go Comics. And mm. if you want to check out my TTRPG, uh, my latest role playing game book, uh, that's available at the Steve Conley shop at stevecolley.com. It's also at intoximancy.com. Right. Nice. Twitch.tv slash Steve Conley, Tuesdays and Thursdays, 4 to 8 East Coast. Yep. And that's where I'm at very often because, you know, I'm a full-time freelancer, so I could do this while <laughs> editing. Or sometimes instead of editing. So. <laughs> uh, I'm usually at work at that time, so, like, I can't. <laughs> Yeah, you know, you need to get on that Twitch, that Twitch bus ride, train ride. Uh, Twitch, uh, eventually. Uh, I mean, I I show Elden Ring sometimes, so maybe I guess I can show them drawing. Yeah, and I'll post all those links in the episode description, so listeners, you can follow those along. Highly recommend. Definitely check out the Middle Age. You know, Twitch, great, great fun time. On that note, I'm Eric Long. I'm Phil Fleming. And Steve, since you've listened to our episode, uh, our podcast, you know we have a tradition of signing off with a '90s slash early 2000s TV show. We'd like to give you the honor of saying what '90s early 2000s TV show <laughs> this episode is. Okay, because of my age and because '90s and early aughts, uh, <laughs> Fast and the Furious, <laughs> um, it, it would be uh, can I uh, the Fantastic Journey. Uh, TV show, which is available on uh, Plex, is the <laughs> streaming service. 
Wow. And, and Crackle, <laughs> it, was a TV, it was an absolutely terrible science fiction TV show called The Fantastic Journey. That would be, it would call it The Fantastic Journey. I vaguely, I might have seen I've, this. Yeah, this sounds okay. very familiar. It's, it's, it's. Is this a lot more than, like there's like a, a family in a sedan, they fall into like a crack of the earth? No, that's, that's uh, Land of the Lost. The Fantastic Journey is a ship that goes into the Bermuda Triangle, and suddenly they find themselves on an island with a guy from the future, a half-Atlantean, half-alien woman. <laughs> And then Roddy McDowell is a scientist from the 60s, and it's it's incomprehensible. But DC Fontana is a story editor, and I've been rewatching it lately, and it's it's not great. <laughs> <laughs> and there you go, there you go. There's Steve Conley for a fantastic journey like that. We're not great. <laughs> <laughs>